That was, that was wonderful. Please open your Bibles to the 24th Psalm, Psalm 24. And this morning we will close out our month-long journey through the first book of the Psalms. And God willing, next week we will begin our study of the book of 1 Timothy. But it's my hope that when we finish 1 Timothy, um, that we can return again to the second book of the Psalms and, and sort of periodically return. And so it's been a sweet time here, and hopefully we will be back again. If you remember, the, the, the Psalms are unique because primarily in the rest of Scripture, we have God talking to men. And yet in the Psalms, we have godly men talking to God. And in an amazing work, the Holy Spirit speaking through these prayers, God is still talking to us. But what we have is a model or a pattern for prayer, worship, and all the different emotional aspects of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul probably most clearly lays out the doctrine of the gospel, the propositions of our faith. But it is the Psalms that show us most clearly the emotional life of God's believers. And today in our last Psalm, Psalm 24, we will look at this, this corporate gathering of man with God for worship. God's people with the living God. And we will be instructed. Let's, let's read Psalm 24 in its entirety. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, the setting for Psalm 24, um, the, the scenario for its writing, has a long tradition in the church being associated for that time in 2 Samuel 6, where David moved the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom, where it had stayed, to Jerusalem. This was David's second attempt to move the Ark. The first didn't fare so well. That was when they put it in the cart and um, moving it from Abinadab's house. And the priest should have known better than to put the ark in a cart. And the ark started falling out of the cart. My guess is the ark was abandoning ship. And Uzzah reaches out to stay the ark, and he's struck dead. And, and God is showing his people, you will treat me as holy. It's not a casual thing to come together with the living God. And so David is fearful. Everyone else is fearful. They leave the ark at the house of Abinadab. And then a second time, they try to move the ark. 
And this time it's a very different scene. If you'll remember, the priests are carrying the ark with the poles and they move six steps and they put the ark down and they offer sacrifices and they pick the ark back up and they walk six steps. And they put, it's a very different type of procession than what we see the first time around with the cart. David's learned his lesson. Speaking of this, um, one writer says this about Psalm 24. The first effort to bring the ark to Jerusalem was sloppy and casual. We are told that God became angry at the lack of reverence for, which, for that which symbolized his own presence. And as a result, one of the priests in whom this attitude was exemplified was struck down. After this, we read that David was afraid of the Lord and asked, How can the ark come to me? Psalm 24 fits well as the residue of lessons learnt from this experience. When the ark was finally and successfully brought into the city, it was an occasion of great celebration, but also of great reverence. God was coming into Jerusalem, and the words of Psalm 24 serve as the anthem for the entrance of God. Of course, God was already present with his people in Jerusalem, and he is certainly not bound to objects or spaces, but God is present everywhere at every moment, it is true, but this occasion marked the formal entrance of Yahweh into Jerusalem. So again, we cannot be certain of its occasion, but there's a long tradition in the church associating this psalm with that. And then it was used later as pilgrims would approach the holy city, precursor to the Psalms of Ascents. And we're going to see that there's, it moves in three stages. There's three sections. Um, if you look in your notes, we're going to worship the all-sovereign creator and sustainer. We're going to worship the all-holy judge and savior. And we're going to worship the all-victorious king of kings. And, and that's the movement. A contemplation of God as sovereign creator and sustainer will move into a contemplation on the holiness of God and on our own unworthiness. And finally, arriving at this conquering, victorious, mighty king of glory, entering into fellowship with his people. Another thing to note about this psalm is it's a community psalm. This isn't a psalm that can be sung individually. One of the giveaways is there's a call and response. Three times a question is asked. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? To which an answer is given. And then, who is this king of glory? And an answer is given. And again, who is this king of glory? And again, the answer is given. And one can picture David or the priests or one tribe calling out the question while the rest of the assembly responds. It's got corporate involvement. Many of our um, confessions of faith are written this way with question and answer. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith, for instance, begins, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. See the question and response. And so th there's a liturgical worship flavor to this psalm. There's a corporate involvement. Well, let's dive in and look at our first point, worshiping the all-sovereign creator and sustainer. The all-sovereign creator and and sustainer. And this, this is the first two verses. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And so the first thing we see here is that the Lord has authority over all things. The Lord has authority over all things. 
And this isn't a partial authority. This is an absolute authority. And it's hard for us to grapple with these concepts, living as we do in a, in a democratic form of government. We're not used to kings. We're not used to potentates, sovereign lords. But, but that is how God is described here. And the starting point of understanding who God is in Scripture over and over and over again is He's the Lord over all. We may want to start with, well, God is love or God is holy. He is those things. But in Scripture, the pattern given to us in Genesis, modeled for us in Paul's evangelism in Acts 18 at Mars Hill, is God is first and foremost the sovereign Lord over all, He is the Creator. And then we move from there. This sets him apart from everyone and everything else. He is the one person in the universe, or outside of the universe, or words fail, who can say, it's all mine. And, and this David here makes this clear. The earth is the Lord's and everything within it, not just the land, not just the geographic boundaries, but every molecule of dust, every bug, every beetle, every star, every galaxy... Every person, every bank account is the Lord's. It's all his. Any of our ownership, any of our claims at possession are subordinate claims. It's really better understood that we are stewards of the Lord's possessions. We are stewards of the Lord's money, of the Lord's car, of the Lord's houses. I'm a steward of my children. They're not mine. They're gods. And I've been entrusted with their care for a time. And this is where it has to start when we contemplate who God is. He is first and foremost the authority over all things. The psalmist using the language of founding it upon the waters is, is referencing Genesis 1 where in verse 6 through 10 it is said, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. and Let it separate the water from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the water that was under the heavens from the water that was above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So yes, God established the land upon the waters in exact accord with the Genesis account. Which brings us to our second point. The Lord is the author and sustainer. Notice the way David reasons. He declares, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And then he gives us a reason why. Why is the earth the Lord's? In other religions, in other pagan myths, a god could be the ruler of a region due to conquest. I mean, is the earth the Lord's because the Lord bested another god in battle and now he gets to claim it? No. The earth is the Lord's precisely because the Lord is the author of the earth, the creator and sustainer, which is a very different type of claim. If the Lord had championed some other deity and taken over the earth, perhaps someone else could do that to him, but there can be no doubt of the claim of ownership of the one who spoke and it came into being. He made it. And that word author is where we get our word authority. 
The two share a common root. Because the Lord is the author of all things, the Lord has authority over all things. It is precisely because God made it that he gets to define it, which causes so much confusion in our day because if you don't start here with this worldview, the culture is going to start to ask questions, well, why does God get to define sexuality? Why does God get to define marriage? Why does God get to define these things? And you've got to start with, well, because he made it. It's his creation. He spoke it into being. It wouldn't exist without him. This is also the reason why anytime there are attempts to undermine um, the creation, God's creation is revealed in Scripture, and there's all sorts of ways to minimize or undermine it, we are inevitably undermining the Godhood of God. We are undermining the sovereignty of God. We, we, you, it can't help but be done whenever we would minimize or undermine the creation account. Time and time again, the scriptures go back to creation as the foundation for the Godhood of God demonstrated. I'll give you an example. Psalm 33, 8 to 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The reason why every inhabitant of earth should be in awe of God because his word is so powerful that he spoke and the nothing obeyed and became everything. According to Hebrews 1.3, what keeps the creation together and stops it from falling apart? According to Hebrews 1.3, Jesus upholds the universe by the power of his word. The language of God made everything and the language of God holds everything together. And that's where we've got to start if we're to approach the living God. He is the one who has authority over all things because he is the one who made all things. You know, it, and today, as science helps us explain more and more how things work, there can be a temptation to think we don't need God. It's, it's like the old story of the scientist who, upon successfully cloning a sheep or a human, boasted that, you know, he could make a better man than God could. So the Lord accepted the challenge. You probably have heard this. They get together, and the scientist gathers his materials, his dirt, and God says, wait a second, get your own dirt. <laughs> right? I mean, you get, the, you get the point here. God isn't just marvelous because look what he did with the things that are already in existence. God is to be feared and worshipped because he made it. Now, we can do impressive things with the things that God has made. We can piggyback on what God has done and do other things. But none of us can speak to nothing and create everything. And so God is in a class altogether by himself. This is the way the Lord rebukes Job when Job begins to question him. He says, Job, where were you when I stretched out the heavens? Where were you when I measured the deep? Do you lead Orion and its constellation out? Do you, do you call all the stars by name? And what he's teaching Job is the Lord is not accountable to anyone. Which can be a scary thing, right? Again, we like democracy. We like rulers who are accountable to us. And here's the Lord saying precisely, I made everything as mine, and I don't need to answer for anything. Now, it's amazing that he frequently does. It is wonderful that the Lord often will tell us why he's doing and what he is doing. But there are times, say perhaps in Romans 9, where Paul simply says, who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will the things say to the maker, well, why have you made me this way? 
And that's all tied up in God's authority and sovereignty as the maker and sustainer. And it's the starting point for understanding who God is. There are so many attempts today to start understanding who God is someplace else. And, and time and time again in Scripture, it starts with he made everything. He upholds everything. It is his. Now I can tell you some more about this God. And so we start here. And we start in reverence of who God is. The people of God coming to worship God, the ark approaching Jerusalem starts with this is all God's. And if we don't remind ourselves, we can forget and we can start thinking of, well, this is my money and this is my car and it's don't waste my time and on and on and on. When really, if we had a biblical worldview, it's God's time and God's money and God's house and God's stuff. It, it changes how you look at things and it changes how you live and it changes how you respond when things don't go your way or my way. Let's be honest. Which brings us now to our second point. Worship the all-holy judge and savior. And, and the, the second point flows out of the first. After a meditation on this awesome God, the God who always was, who always will be, the God who made everything. Well, the next question is, well, who on earth can stand in front of this God? And, and notice how that's not normally the question most people ask today. If most people today believe there is a God, the one thing they believe about God is this God must just accept everybody just as they are. He, he must just love everybody unconditionally. There is a truth to that. But people take that to mean... God just thinks I'm hunky-dory. This isn't a new phenomena. C.S. Lewis wrote of this. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who says things like, I like to see the people enjoying themselves and whose plans for the universe was simply that it might be truly, at the end of each day, said, a good time was had by all. You know, the grandparents just, let the kids come in, here's some candy. Have a good time. And people want a heavenly grandfather, not a heavenly father. If you don't start with a sovereign creator God, you're probably not going to be asking, who on earth can stand in the presence of this God? But if you start where David starts, then the question makes sense. And so the question is asked, who can stand? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his presence? Which is to say, who can approach God? And who, upon approaching, is not annihilated by the holiness of God? Who, upon approaching, can remain standing? Again, these are not questions that I often encounter in unbelievers. They're great questions, but they usually are questions asked by people who have begun to grasp the power and the authority and the holiness of God. Well, the question receives an answer. Again, you can picture the people approaching the mountain and in years following, approaching the temple to worship, crying out, what are the requirements to approach God? There is really a hill in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, where the ark was put down and later a temple was built for it. And yet in a metaphorical sense, to approach God is uphill work for every one of us, as Charles Spurgeon said. And so the answer given is threefold. What are the requirements for worship and fellowship with the living God? Well, first, 
The answer we receive in verse 4 is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. You have to be clean on the outside and clean on the inside. The hands refer to what you do. The scriptures will talk about the work of one's hands. Hands covered in bloodshed and violence. So the hands speak to actions. So what does it take to stand before God? Pure actions. Now before we even move on, because it gets worse, that, that's bad enough. That's hard enough. That's a high enough standard. There's no one here who, if we were judged simply by what we have done, would, would pass this test. Amen? Amen. But it gets worse. If that's not a high enough standard, perhaps somebody like the rich young ruler might dare to say, I have done all these things from my youth. Well, the cup doesn't just need to be clean on the outside. The cup needs to be clean on the inside. Pure heart. And now we're all sunk. Now we're all undone. Clearly. Because the Lord knows the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. He sees it perfectly clear. And I hope there's not one of us who wouldn't be terrified to have what we thought in our hearts just say, yesterday, put on the screen behind me. I certainly wouldn't want that. And so the initial answer is intimidating and, and frightening. Maybe we're tempted to dumb it down. This just must mean some sort of relative purity. I've been pretty good. My thought life's been pretty good. I don't think that works. We've just come off of two verses that exalt in absolute terms the authority and sovereignty of God. It would be strange to me that now we're just going to speak sort of generally. Oh no, I, I think the standard is meant to be unachievable. The standard is meant to be a cliff that just faces us that cannot be climbed. And a few verses later, we got a hint at how this works. Because if you look down to verse um, 5, we get a hint that this is not about works righteousness. We might be tempted to think, okay, the, the righteous people, the people who obey all the time can approach God and everyone else can't. In verse 5, this person, this man who ascends will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Which is an interesting concept because if it takes righteousness to stand before God, how does it make sense that the benefit of standing before God is you get righteousness from the God of his salvation? It's kind of like that circle where you can't get a job unless you have experience, but you, it's really hard to get experience without a job. You can't stand before the Lord without holiness and righteousness, but the benefit of the reward of standing before God is holiness and righteousness. How, how does this work? Let's, let's bear with this a few more minutes and try to resolve the tension. I want to read one other quote, though. It's important to notice the fundamental quality that God is looking for those who would approach him is Holiness. Holiness isn't a very popular topic in, in the church these days. People get excited about doing things and experiencing things and, you know, working things for God. And God's after our hearts. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world, but there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. 
little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what early Christian generations called holiness. There's a great new book out by Kevin DeYoung called The Hole in Our Holiness that some of our youth and adults are reading, and I would recommend it greatly. Um, What God wants from us is holiness. According to Ephesians, we were predestined before the foundation of the world for salvation to walk in good works which God had prepared beforehand for us. We were saved so that we could be holy. And here with this cycle, what I think is going on is this. These people are saved by an alien righteousness. It's not their own righteousness. We see clearly in verse 5 that the gift, the reward of standing before the Lord is a righteousness, a justification. Maybe some of your, your translations say vindication from the God of his salvation. Well, if this person were perfectly pure of hand and heart, he would need no salvation. So we know this is, this is about an imputed, granted righteousness, but yet these people are marked by it. These people are marked by it. The questions spoken here are intended to cause those who seek entrance to reflect humbly on their need for repentance and divine mercy. The liturgy is not so much a self-righteous declaration of innocence as it is a solemn admission of dependence on the merciful grace of God whom the worshiper approaches. Spurgeon writes, It must not be supposed that the persons who are thus described by their inward and outward holiness are saved by the merit of their works, but their works are the evidence by which they are known. It's as if to say, how do you recognize those whom the Lord has granted righteousness? Well, they're growing in holiness. It's the desire of their heart as they approach God's throne. Well, secondly, the the qualification for approaching the Lord is given negatively. We've seen it positively. You must have pure hands. You must have a pure heart. Negatively, you must not be an idolater or a liar. That's the second half of verse 4. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Literally, that phrase, lift up his soul to what is false, is who has not lifted up his soul to emptiness. And to help understand, what does it mean to lift up your soul? Well, go a chapter ahead to Psalm 25, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. This is about valuing something, eagerly awaiting something. And just a little later in the psalm, the gates are going to be called upon to lift themselves up. You know, you're sort of walking along, and you're, all of a sudden something happens, you get excited about it, and what do you do? You lift up your head, and you get excited. And that's the concept here. And David is telling us that part of what it means to have pure hands and a pure heart is inwardly not to value empty things more than we value God. Empty things don't have to be bad things. I mean, certainly it's a, it's a big enough problem for us when we love and cherish bad things. But some things are just empty. You know, in, in, the, in the line of eternity, is it going to matter what type of car I drove? In light of eternity, is it going to matter which sports team beat which sports team? In the light of eternity, does it matter which bands put out which albums? In the light of eternity, does it matter how much money is in your bank account? Not that these aren't things for us to be concerned about. Not that these aren't things for us to be pleased in. But do we lift up our soul to them? Do we find our glory and our joy in them? 
When they're taken from us, do we lose hope? That's, that's the question being asked here. And David says this, this man, this woman who would approach God has not lifted up their soul to what is empty, to what is vain, to what is just soap bubbles. Ecclesiastes talks about how so much of what this world has are soap bubbles. Vanity of vanities. So inwardly, he worships God, he treasures God, and he's not a liar. He has integrity. What he speaks is true and comes to pass. So this is the standard for those who would worship God. Clean hands, pure heart, a worshiper of God who doesn't exalt other things above the Lord, someone whose tongue speaks what is true. This this is not a standard that any one of us can meet on our own. Let's be clear about that. It becomes clearer still as we look into the results Oh, no, sorry, not the results. The point three, a desire for the Lord himself and not just his gifts. And this is really the, the point that I think helps explain really what's going on here. If you jump down to verse six, taking this a little out of order, we get a sort of summary statement. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so the, the, the way this paragraph works is a question is asked, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer is given. People who meet these qualifications. And then results of that fellowship are given. And then a summary statement, this is what denotes, this is what the hallmarks, this is the case of those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And in telling us that, we get another insight into the character of those who would approach God. And that's point three, a desire for the Lord himself and not just his gifts. A desire for the Lord himself and not just his gifts. This is the hallmark of that generation who seek the Lord. They seek the face of the Lord. It's so easy to seek God for what he can give us, to treat him like a cosmic vending machine. Um, And God does give us many good gifts. But the best gift is himself. The best gift is his son. And we want to cry out like Paul that I leave everything else behind me, like trash, and press on hard for the goal to know God in Christ. And you say, well, Paul, you already know God in Christ. But Paul wants to know more. Paul wants to see his face more clearly. He says, we see through a glass dimly now, but then we shall see him face to face. And that's Paul's great longing and desire. And it's the desire that marks the people of God. And so what we see then is is this package where if your heart wants to know the living God and you desire to see his face, then you will cry out, "What, what do I need to stand before him? And the answer will be given, righteousness, holiness. And the good news is for those who approach God, it is the very blessing of the approach. Let's let's move on. The results of worship and fellowship. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The results of being able to approach God, first, a blessing, which simply, I think, refers to joy, peace, and fellowship with God. Joy, peace, and fellowship with God. It might be other blessings, but I think those are the primary blessings of standing before God. 
the joy of knowing that you're at peace with him, knowing that you are accepted by him, the peace that you have with him, the peace that you have with the law, and fellowship with the living God. Those are the blessings that God gives. This isn't a prosperity message where, you know, the person who can stand before God is going to get a big, you know, raise. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. The real blessings, the eternal blessings are God. And secondly, righteousness, or some of your translations may say um, vindication. It's the Hebrew word sedechah. It's a legal term that denotes a ruling by a judge regarding what should have occurred in a case under judgment. It's a Hebrew term for a judgment in a law court. So it could mean vindication, as though the judge were vindicating you, but I think um, the ESV and some other translations get it better when they translate it righteousness. They get the judicial ruling in their favor, not guilty. The reward of approaching God, wanting to see his face, desiring clean hands and a pure heart, is righteousness. The fact that this comes from God, his Savior, emphasizes that this righteousness is granted by God, not earned by faultless compliance with external laws. So this is a gift righteousness that is received. And it's from God, his Savior. They do not ascend the hill of the Lord, Spurgeon writes, as givers, but as receivers. They do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which has been received. Holy living ensures a blessing as its reward from the thrice holy God. But it is itself a blessing of the new covenant and a delightful fruit of the Spirit. Now listen to this. God first gives us good works and then rewards us for them. Isn't that wonderful? You wonder, how do you get in this cycle where you can't get a job without experience, you can't get experience without a job, you can't approach the Lord without righteousness. But approaching the Lord is what gets you righteousness. And here, what Spurgeon says is God gives us the righteousness. And then, as we live that out, he rewards us for that very gift that he gave us. That's the wonder of our salvation. That God gives us righteousness and rewards us for righteousness that he gives. And even though it's not clear at the time of Psalm 24's writing, it's probably worth pushing this forward into the new covenant some. And in the new covenant, we learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the living God. He is God himself. And then Jesus says, anyone who wants to come to the Father has to come through me. If you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. So what it means for us then to be a people who seek the face of the living God is to be a people who seek Jesus. That's, that's not in Psalm 24. But as we take what we learn in Psalm 24 and apply it to what we learn in the New Covenant in the New Testament, that's what it means for us. There is no seeking the face of God apart from seeking Jesus. Jesus is repeatedly clear on that point. And God is Savior? Well, obviously that applies to Jesus' work on the cross. Again, not clearly in Psalm 24. But in Psalm 24, you need to seek God. In Psalm 24, you need God's righteousness. And this side of the cross, we know where to look to seek the face of God, and we know where to go for righteousness, and it's Jesus. And so, we might say, who can approach God? Well, people who have righteousness. Where do you go for righteousness? Jesus. Where do you go to find the face of the living God? Jesus. 
Where do you go for forgiveness? Jesus. It's no wonder that Jesus said all the law and the prophets speak of him because they point forward. These attitudes, these desires, these questions that are being asked in Psalm 24 get answered even more fully in the new covenant. And finally, the point of the generation, such is the generation of the congregation of faith. This, is, this generation is the congregation of faith. And what David is simply pointing out is how do you recognize in a society where everyone claims to be a God worshiper, in Israel, everyone would have claimed to be a Yahweh worshiper. Well, how do you recognize the true Israelites, the faithful ones? Well, they're the ones asking these questions. They're the ones approaching God. They're the ones who are crying out for righteousness. They're the ones who are trying to live out lives with clean hands and pure hearts. This, says David, is what marks off the people of God. And it's true today. How do you, how do you know um, who the Christians are? Because on Gallup polls, 70 plus percent of America claims to be Christian. And if you've been, you know, just out of your house in the last year, you know better. Um, and what David's saying here is, this is, these are the hallmarks of the generation of those who seek his face. This is the character traits of the people of God. It's true then, and it's true now. And then that makes us ask the question, is that what we're known for? Are we known for holiness? Are, are we known for holiness? Paul says at the Thessalonian church that the report has gone out about their holiness so that everyone in Asia Minor knows of it. This is what should mark us, and it's my prayer, I hope it's our prayer, that God would continue to put his stamp on us so that it would mark us out more and more. Well, let's turn now to the, the final and third section. Worship the all-victorious king of glory. So in the first two parts, the people meditate on who God is, which exalts their view of God, and in light of that, they cry out, what is our requirement to stand before the living God? And the answer given, holiness. And so the people have prepared themselves. They've humbled themselves. They've prepared themselves to approach the living God. In the last section, the Lord approaches his people. And that's really the hallmark of what a temple is. And there are pictures of temple all throughout the Old Testament. A temple is where God and man meet and sin is dealt with. So in some sense, it's the Garden of Eden. It's where man and God met, and God provided animal skins for Adam and Eve. And then there's the tent of meeting with Moses, where Moses would meet with God, and then the tabernacle, and then the temple. And then Jesus comes along and says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it. Why? Because Jesus is where man and God meet, and sin is dealt with. And so God's people are prepared to meet with God. Now God is going to meet with his people and it helps explain why the psalmist uses such dramatic, exultant language, repeating himself. And the point of the repetition here is to slow you down. When things are repeated in Scripture, usually it's for two purposes. One, to let you know, hey, this is important. And two, to stop you from racing on to the next thing. And so they cry out, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Now, it's possible that David is referring to the already existent gates or doors of the Jebusite stronghold that was on Mount Zion. 
Um, just a chapter earlier in 2 Samuel 5, David gains possession of Mount Zion from the Jebusites, and there's a stronghold there. Those might be the ancient gates he's talking about. Or David could know that God would eventually build a temple, and so he says it sort of prophetically. I don't know. The whole thing's a metaphor anyway. Gates don't generally lift themselves up in praise. And the point is this. When God approaches his people, he is so holy, he is so mighty, he is so awesome, that the very architecture should start worshiping him. And then, of course, the question is, how much more should we? That's why also the scripture can talk of the trees clapping their hands, the mountains trembling, the seas being afraid and running away. It's, it's all metaphor for how God's creation should be in awe of God. How much more his special creation that bears his image. And so questions three and four here, or questions two and three, who is the Lord of glory, get asked, in almost near identical sense and language. And we're going to try to focus on some of the differences, but let's just read that. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And so, point A, we see here the Lord enters fellowship with his people. The Lord is entering for fellowship with his people. In the first two-thirds of the psalm, God's people are preparing for fellowship with him, and now the Lord arrives. And so we'll look at the first chorus. Who is this king of glory? Verse 8, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And the first chorus emphasizes that we are to worship the mighty warrior king. And again, this is another character trait, attribute, name for God that we may not initially think of. The Lord is a warrior. The scriptures repeatedly emphasize this point, but it generally doesn't fit in with the cuddly, lovey God that so many want to imagine. But the Lord of hosts is Lord of armies. Lord of hosts, mighty in battle. Um, that the mighty gates of Jerusalem should lift up their heads to allow the king to enter is a wonderfully poetic way of explaining the greatness of the divine king. He is the king of glory, but note how he is described here when it is asked, who is the king of glory? He is Yahweh, strong and mighty in battle. God is described as a warrior king. He is the God of battle waging war against his enemies for the extension of his kingdom. But to David, this is no new concept. I mean, Think of the exodus from Egypt and how God battled his foes and triumphed. Think of the conquest of Canaan, the battle of Jericho and all that ensued. Or even more recently, what left the ark at the house of Obed-Edom was that Phineas's sons, I mean, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, took the uh, ark into battle, kind of as a lucky rabbit's foot. And they were defeated and the Philistines gained possession of the ark. And in short order, they didn't want the ark anymore because they started getting tumors and rats, and so they passed it around from city to city and then the next city, but we don't want that. And finally, they sent it back on a cart with gold to make God stop smiting them. 
I mean, in a very real sense, the Ark of the Lord by itself went on a military campaign and came back with spoils of war. <laughs> I mean, just imagine you're an Israelite. What's that on the hill? It's the Ark. What else is in the cart? Gold. Um, no, he's the Lord of hosts. He's a warrior, and he fights for his people. And I just would encourage you that if we focus on personal holiness and the need for God's righteousness and we're focusing our eyes on him as the creator and ruler of all things, then nothing can harm us that the Lord doesn't permit. He's a mighty warrior fighting for his people. And, and, and we can be no safer place than in his hand. The second chorus focuses on worship the glorious king of glory. Again, they're almost identical, but the first chorus seems to emphasize the warrior battle nature of God, and the second just reemphasizing he is the king of glory. And, and the point is that words fail us. Glory is that which draws out praise and adoration and worship from us. God's the king of glory, or the glorious king. Both ways would work. And the point is this, that God is so holy and so perfect and so wonderful that we will never exhaust his glory. And one of the reasons why heaven is not going to be boring, if you've ever been asked, you know, isn't heaven going to kind of get old? No, because God being infinite, there will never be glories yet that we have exhausted. We, there will always be new things, to say it another way, more clearly. There will always be new wonderful things to learn about God. He is the king of glory. We will never exhaust his glory. We'll never get to the point where like, okay, I get God now. I understand God. I know everything about God. But rather, every day will be better than the last as our knowledge of him grows, as our comprehension of his wondrous nature grows. He is the king of glory. Now, what, what does this all mean for us? Especially, what does it all mean for us as we approach communion? Well, I think the point we get here is this. That when God's people approach God in reverent awe, humbling themselves... God meets with his people. And that's true then as much as it's true today. Gerald Wilson writes, In the present context, however, this psalm represents in dramatic form the essential convergence of God and man that the temple worship enacted at its core. When humans, rightly prepared in heart and action, wait for Yahweh and worship, the king of glory comes. And that is essentially the mystery of worship that this psalm celebrates. See, as they're preparing their hearts, God meets with them. And that still happens today because the church of God is called the temple of God, according to 1 Corinthians 3. God and men meet. And in just a few minutes, we're going to um, take a symbol of our union with Christ in the Lord's table. But first, I thought it would be fitting. We so often sing um, a song based off the lyrics of Psalm 24. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as we sing, give us clean hands, I just want to encourage you to, to recognize that this, this isn't some boast that we make that we have, but it is a righteousness that we need. And as we prepare to approach the table, Paul warns us in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine ourselves. Maybe there's some dirt on your hands. Maybe there's some dirt on your heart. Now would be a great time to do some business with God so that we could approach the table with pure consciences, pure hearts, clean hands.
If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not one who has put your trust in him, now, now might be a great time for you to do some business with him about that. You need his righteousness. You can't stand on your own. You need to trust his death on the cross to be your vindication and dealing with sin. So we're going to sing, and it is our great hope that the Lord God, the living God, the mighty warrior God will meet with his people again today.